This morning's Bible reading is from Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. He, Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Don't judge a book by its cover is a well-known proverb. It can be a misleading thing to do. Just think about book length, for example. This book here, the cover has three words on it. God is love. But we can see 700 pages. There's about a quarter of a million words inside the book, even though there's only three on the cover. What about this one? High Minds, Victorians and the Birth of Modern Britain. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten words on the front cover. Then, oh, look at that. 800 pages of material. There's about 400,000 words inside that book. 400,000 and only a few on the front. What about this one? Operation World. Good book. Only two words on the front cover. But there's a thousand pages inside the book. There's almost a million words in this book. Only two on the front cover. If we just looked at those front covers, we might get a completely misleading impression of the reality of the book. But that's exactly what the disciples were doing and getting wrong in today's passage. Just looking at the front cover of life. Look at the end of verse 33. Jesus said to them, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. The disciples were only looking at the front cover. Their concerns about Jesus and about their own lives were merely human. They wanted glory immediately. But Jesus wanted them to consider the whole book, not the glory now kingdom they imagined or expected. Instead 
a kingdom of death now, glory, later. Death now, glory, later for Jesus himself. Death now, glory, later for the disciples as well. Firstly then, death now, glory later for the king himself. Mark's gospel comes in four acts. Both act one and act two ended dramatically with two very different conclusions about Jesus. Back in chapter three, the Pharisees held counsel with the Herodians how to destroy Jesus. Here in chapter eight, by contrast, Peter confessed, you are the Christ, a conspiracy and a confession, rejection and then recognition. And now act three begins. And Jesus is always the one setting the agenda. He's never set back by circumstances. What was his response to the Pharisees rejection? To move on, appoint 12 apostles and found a new Israel. And his response here to Peter's recognition, again, to move on, teach the disciples what his kingdom really involves. So verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Death now glory later. Act 1 of Mark announced emphatically that Jesus is God's King, the Messiah, the one whom John the Baptist prepared the way for, who alone resisted temptation and who has total power over demons and disease and death. Act 2 showed that as well as being God's King, Jesus is at the same time God himself, who refounds Israel, provides manna in the wilderness when feeding 5,000, and who walks on water, much as the Spirit of God did at the creation. Here at the start of Act 3, Jesus adds another new layer to his identity. Not only the Messiah, not only God himself, but he's also the suffering servant of Isaiah's prophecy. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and must be killed. The disciples didn't expect these prophecies all to be fulfilled in one person. Their immediate reaction is therefore denial. Verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. A disciple rebuking their teacher in any circumstance would be out of place. But on this particular point, it was especially wrong. The main purpose of Jesus' earthly ministry was to be a sacrifice for sin. To reject this or attempt to prevent it was precisely what the devil would want. No cross would mean no atonement, no gospel, no new life. And so the strong counter-rebuke of verse 33, get behind me, Satan. In rebuking Jesus' prophecy of his death and resurrection, Peter was 
unconsciously channeling Satan himself. Now, the third temptation that Satan offered in the wilderness was for Jesus to rule over all the kingdoms of the world. Success without suffering, triumph without tragedy, a crown without a cross. And that's also what Peter was blithely holding out here. But for the Messiah, who is also the suffering servant, the king who not only reigns but also serves, the pattern must be death now, glory only later. This pattern of death and glory is much more familiar to us than it was to the disciples in the first century. We stand at the other end of centuries of Christianized culture in which the messianic archetype or the Christ figure is normal. From obvious parallels like Aslan in Narnia to less direct ones like Sidney Carton in The Tale of Two Cities or Ripley in Alien, authors and scriptwriters have appreciated the power of Jesus' death and echoed it in their own stories. So we are unlikely to have such a strong reaction as Peter. But are there other more subtle ways in which we do, like him, try to avoid or minimise the suffering of the Saviour? Maybe we prefer to just emphasise Jesus' social ministry, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, going about doing good. Look at how kind Jesus was. Wouldn't it be swell to follow such a kind person? Evangelism by niceness. It's very well for us to point out Jesus' compassion, as long as we don't omit that his chief act of compassion was in dying for the world on the cross. Equally, there's perhaps a temptation to just emphasise Jesus' authority, the distant king reigning over his church in a magisterial fashion, to whom loyalty is simply a duty. But suffering came first, and through the cross comes living, restored relationship. Peter's strong reaction was more than just disliking death now, glory later in his king. It sprang equally from fear of how that impacted him as a disciple. Death now, glory later for the king implies death now, glory later for the subjects as well. The second half of our passage. Look at verse 34. Then he, Jesus, called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your own cross, followed me to death. A heavy call. And to make the point, three justifications are given of this requirement to deny ourselves. Firstly, the call to self-denial is necessary. There are no alternatives. 
verse 35. For whoever wants to save themselves will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. We can't have it both ways. We can't save our lives and keep them. It's either save it and then lose it, or lose it and thereby save it. That's why Jesus says, whoever, it's not most people who save their lives will lose them, but whoever will save their life will lose it. Secondly, the call to self-denial is not only necessary, but sensible. Verses 36 and 37. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Elon Musk became the world's richest man on 7th of January this year, with a net worth of about 190 billion US dollars, which is equivalent to the GDP of the whole of New Zealand. But what good would it be to gain $190 billion and yet forfeit your soul? Can that much money buy back a soul? Of course not. The call to self-denial is not a call to poverty, but it is a call not to set our hearts on riches, either material or intangible. There's no logic to such a course. The soul is vastly more valuable and precious. Thirdly, the call to self-denial is necessary, sensible and also urgent. Verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This verse clarifies the now and the later I've been referring to. Now is this generation, the current age. Later is the return of Christ and the eternal state. Death now glory later. If my books here just consisted of their front covers, they'd be very quick to read indeed, just a, a few words each. But there's far more to all of them than just the front. Just as there is vastly more to our lives than just this current age. If we set our minds on this age and our earthly course, then naturally gaining and keeping life now is all important. But if we set our minds on the things of God and see the whole book, then we will appreciate the value of gaining life then, in the future, when he comes in his Father's glory and the relative ease of letting go now. The necessity, sense and urgency of us dying now 
to enjoy glory later. Death sounds quite dramatic. For Jesus, of course, it did literally mean death, as indeed it has done for many Christians down the ages. But for most of us, denying ourselves probably won't mean literally dying for the gospel. Instead, it will mean little sacrifices, little deaths along the way. A friend of mine once scoffed at that idea. He found the comparison absurd. Giving up little things, a bit of prestige here or a bit of time there, versus giving up life itself. But the reality is that if we're not prepared to make the little sacrifices, to die the little deaths, if we trust so little in eternal reward, then we'll never be prepared to make the bigger sacrifices if and when required to do so. Jesus himself provides us with one practical example of a little death to self in verse 38. Standing by his words, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels. There's plenty of the Bible which is unpopular in the world. An intelligent creator, divine intervention in history, the reality of sin, the need for repentance, the exclusivity of salvation in Christ, the expectation of a judgment, and the eternity of separation. Will we be ashamed of such words, or suffer the shame gladly for the sake of Jesus' approval at the last day? In almost every relational setting we might find ourselves, there will be occasion where the words of Jesus bring the scorn of the world. With friends and family, colleagues and neighbours, at the sports club or the hairdresser, on a committee or on social media, even sometimes at church. But let's not be ashamed of Jesus' words in any of those situations. His approval matters more than the world's. Have in mind the concerns of God. Death now, glory later. Death to self doesn't just mean surrendering our pride, but also, as we know, our time, our talents and our treasure. Just being a member of a church is a small step of sacrifice in a society which views it with scorn and derision. Turning up Sunday by Sunday is a little death to self, when the worldly thing might be to go for a walk or take the kids to football or read the papers instead. Deciding how much to give to Christian causes in life and by legacy requires a taking up of the cross. In big life decisions about which friendships to keep up, where to live, what career to pursue, who to marry, there must always be a readiness to die to self, its natural desires, and instead to think, how can this or that action of mine be best used to serve the gospel? In all these things, let us set our minds on the things of God, 
not on the things of man. You may recall that almost 20 years ago now, a series on BBC came out about the 100 Greatest Britons, where we all voted for who we thought the greatest British person ever was. All of the featured personalities were famous names who achieved great feats as athletes or engineers or military commanders. But the greatness Jesus calls us to here is of a very unflashy type. Christians might end up in positions of repute, but personal glory certainly isn't our aim. The greatest Briton was probably actually someone none of us have ever heard of. Someone who continually set their mind on the things of God rather than the things of man. The church institutionally does make some attempts to hold up such people as role models and examples in distinction to the catalogue of heroes whom the world admires. Lives of saints and biographies of Christians from the past can be very useful in spurring us on to set our minds on the things of God. So let's not stop at the title page. Let's remember the rest of the book and set our mind on it. And when this life is over, we will then all be beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. We pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you above all for the example which the Lord Jesus himself set us in setting before himself the glory that was to come and suffering death in this life even death on a cross. May that pattern of life, Heavenly Father, be ours. For his sake. Amen.